Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me, an evangelical in my early 20s, into a deep dive into the history of Catholicism, history of the Protestant Church, history of the biblical canon, the early church and the Reformation, and all kinds of church history and theology and philosophy. And it was then that I encountered the Catholic Church in its own words. It was really the first time. And it was then that I realized that what I thought I knew about what Catholics believed was oftentimes based on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap, the gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I'm joined by Gary Machuda. Gary has written the book on the biblical canon, and he joins me to answer the question, what is the problem with the Protestant Bible? It's a big problem. It's a tough question that I had to ask myself when I was becoming Catholic and looking into the Catholic Church as an evangelical. The problem of the Protestant Bible. I think you'll find it's a very compelling episode, especially for those who are wrestling with these kinds of issues, who are on the journey somewhere, maybe aren't on the journey or haven't even considered it, but fell into this podcast somehow and are thinking now, well, is there a problem with the Protestant Bible? Because there is. There there was for me and for many evangelical converts to Catholicism, this same problem looms. And it's a big one. And in this episode, I kind of unpack this with Gary. We have a great conversation. He's the guy who knows the Deuterocanon, the apocryphal books of the Bible, the canon of the Bible, the formation of the Bible, how the Bible has been used and, and, and changed, and the form that we have it in today is, is well, different. It begins to be a bit of a problem. Well, it's a great episode. I think you're going to love it and enjoy digging into this question and this problem. And hopefully you'll leave thinking, <laughs> thinking something new and, and being challenged in a new way. It's, it's kind of the goal of this episode and our conversation. I think you'll love it. This podcast is brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Thank you guys for your financial underpinning of this show. It's through your donations, through your support, that I am able to grow the show, to reach new people, to expand the audience, and to pour more time and energy into this thing. Thank you. If you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or a one-time donation at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. And now, without any further ado, here's my fantastic conversation on the problem of the Protestant Bible with Gary Machuda. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. Our topic this week is the Bible, and I'm joined by Gary Machuda to talk about it. 
Gary is the host of Hands-On Apologetics on Virgin Most Powerful Radio and available on podcast everywhere. He has a brand new YouTube channel, which I'll get him to tell us about a little later on. He's a popular speaker, catechist, and the author of a number of superb books, including Hostile Witnesses, How the Historic Enemies of the Church Prove Christianity, that's a fantastic book, and Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger. I make no secret of the fact that Gary is one of my favorite people to talk to, so Gary, welcome and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. Well, hey, thanks for having me. Boy, I'm glad this isn't on video because I think I'm starting to blush. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, well, you deserve it. Listen, I really want to lean into one particular thesis tonight, and I'm glad to have you here to work through it with me. And and here's my thesis, Gary. I'll lay it out right here for the listeners to get to to, to absorb. It's this. If Protestants base their understanding of their faith on the Bible alone, then they really need to be sure that their Bible is complete. In other words, when I was an evangelical, we read our Bibles, we, we heard sermons about passages from the Bible, we read theologians commenting on the Bible, and this is where we got our faith from. And if it turns out that that Bible was missing something, that something was removed, well, this would be an incredible problem. <laughs> so, I want to talk around this thesis tonight, and first of all, I do want to touch on whether or not the Bible that I read as an evangelical is missing pieces, because that's important to our discussion, but I don't want to go too deep down that side trail. And if listeners want a fuller treatment of that, Gary, you and I sat down back in episode 62 to talk about why Catholic Bibles are bigger. So I encourage listeners for a deep dive into that topic. Head back to that episode. It's one of my favorites, obviously. But here's a thesis that Protestants really, really need to be sure that their Bibles aren't missing something if their faith is understood solely or or even primarily through their Bibles. So I want to dig in there for a good long time, but Gary, our mutual friend and fellow podcaster and philosopher Pat Flynn tells me we shouldn't let Protestants off the hook quite so easily by assuming or granting that the Christian faith can be understood through the Bible alone. So I want to take a few minutes there, and I promise just this one rabbit trail, but I do want to push back a little bit against that premise to begin with. I mean, there's one problem if the Bible that's being used is missing stuff, but it's another problem altogether. If the idea is I should be only using my Bible, and if that idea isn't biblical to begin with. So let's sit there for a minute. Gary, what do you think about this idea of the Bible alone being used as a rule of faith? Let's, Let's kind of push back there a little bit first. Yeah, well, you know, it's my understanding that the the belief in the Bible alone or the Latin sola scriptura is really an assumption. It's not something that people argue for and then they buy into it, but it's really something that's presumed upon them. For example, if they're unchurched, uh, maybe somebody will come to them with a Bible and say the Bible says this and that, and therefore you need to accept Jesus and then join a Bible-believing church. And so it's just part of the air that Protestants breathe. Or maybe if they're Catholic, the person might say, well, the Bible teaches X, the Catholic Church teaches Z, either X is true, the Bible's true, or the Catholic Church is wrong. You know, you have to choose the Bible because that is the truth. And the underlying premise underneath all of that is that you go to the Bible to confirm doctrine, what is Christian, what isn't Christian, what should be practiced, what shouldn't be practiced. Next to you, you know, with your background, I'm curious, was that your experience, that it was just assumed that you just go to the Bible for everything? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm nodding my head over here, and listeners, of course, can't see that. But that's when you said that, I thought, yeah, Gary is right. Of course, Gary is right, guys. But, I mean, this is the thing. It, it was just kind of presumed upon. And, I mean, I remember talking to Jimmy Aiken way back when about the idea of, of Bibles and where the Bible came from and the development of the Bible. And he had said to me something similar that really stopped me in my tracks is that, really, you're just handed a Bible, like you're literally handed a Bible. I literally drove, well, my mom drove me. I was in high school <laughs> to the local Bible uh, store and got a Bible from the shelf. Literally, somebody just gave me the Bible. There was no kind of, okay, this came from the church and the church put it together and the church is going to help you interpret it. Nothing. You're just kind of handed that Bible. And then you're right. It's not a challenged, in my case, it certainly wasn't a challenged or really understood or really fleshed out idea. It's just, mm-hmm. as you say, this this thing in the air, this oxygen, this assumption that's floating there that we have this text handed down to us from somewhere, sometimes literally from the lady at the treasure house who gave me the yeah. Bible, right? that we just look at and read and, and understand. It's not something overtly decided upon or, like you said, rejected. It's, it's in the air, right? right? Yeah, and uh, and that's the whole idea behind Bible societies, you know, to publish the Bible, disseminate it. And, well, also, there, if you notice, like if you ever look at a Gideon Bible, if you're ever bored at a hotel and <laughs> open up the drawer and there's a Gideon Bible, you notice on the front page there's always this key, a doctrinal key that says – basically lays out the Protestant understanding of, of salvation and go to these verses. Everybody's a sinner and they'll give you a list of verses to go to and stuff like that. So uh, there's direction, you know, even that in itself kind of speaks to soul scriptura or you could find certain things in the Bible and, you know, and the assumption is, well, if it's not in the Bible, then that's not a Christian idea. Yeah, and I mean, the fascinating thing is, I guess the question becomes, well, where is Sola Scriptura in the Bible, right? That is the yeah, perennial right. question. I've had I've had panels about this on this show, uh, sure. the idea of Sola Scriptura. And if we're going to even begin to, I mean, unpack this idea of the Protestant Bibles missing something, well, we do have to push back uh, against this idea that the the, the Protestant Bible or, or any Bible is is enough for your faith. Never mind if those Bibles are, are missing something and then your faith is kind of incomplete and this goes in the chain here. I guess, you know, for me, one of the most common uh, uh, verses applied for Sola Scriptura that Protestants will turn to is Second Timothy 3.16, which talks about right. all Scripture being God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking um, and on and on. I mean, I've written articles some length about that verse and, and how yeah. I have found that to be challenging. And look, I'm not trying to speak for all Protestants or say that I have I have the, the keys to unlock why Sola Scriptura is wrong. In my experience as a convert, I found it to be wanting. And when I searched for clues for evidence mm-hmm. from the Bible, the Bible alone is how I'm supposed to use it, I, I, I found things like this and and... Well, it was kind of wanting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think part of it is when Protestantism uh, broke away from the historic church, they broke away from his, the historic authority of Christ and his church. So by default, you know, they're left with the Bible and the Bible alone, how they interpret it. And uh, so uh, I think it, Protestantism kind of backed into this belief of sola scriptura. And yeah, I, you know, the, the, the three main problems I see with it is 
Soul Scriptura can't support the Sola, the alone, like you just mentioned. It can't support the Scriptura. How do you know which books are in the Bible? And third, it can't, it doesn't provide for whose interpretation of the Bible is authoritative. And for me, all three of those points are, are deadly because that is the very essence of you know the doctrine of Bible alone. Yeah, I mean, any of those, we, we could easily do a whole show on. I mean, yeah, we're going right. to talk a bit more about the second one. How do you know what's in the Bible belongs in there? And that becomes a really big challenge if the Bible is your sole rule of faith and you can't yeah. be totally sure of the the contents of that, the table of contents. And when you learn, as I did talking to you in episode 62, we'll dig a bit deeper into this in a little bit, you learn that, wait a minute, this Bible wasn't always this small. It used to be a bit bigger, and it kind of shrunk a little bit. So like That becomes yeah. a bit of a concern. Um, and then, of course, you find things like in that first point, right, alone. I mean, thinking about 2 Timothy 3.16, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is often used as, as evidence for Sola Scriptura, but nowhere in there does Paul tell Timothy that Scripture alone is, is yeah. is useful for this. He says scripture is useful. Of course, Gary, we know that he was referring to the Old Testament because he mm-hmm. couldn't have possibly, Timothy, from his infancy, been reading the New Testament books that, that they didn't exist. Yeah. I mean... Right. So, are, are yeah, we... And the preceding context, I think, completely undermines that whole interpretation. Because Paul says in verse 14, he's talking to Timothy, he says, remain faithful from what you have learned and believed. Okay, so oral tradition... Uh, because you know from whom you learned it. So it's no, a teacher who's recognized as authoritative, a magisterium, if you will, and from infancy, the scriptures that are able to lead you to salvation. So it's not scripture alone. It's actually all three of these things Timothy needs to hold on to. And of the three, scripture is helpful. It's useful, you know, but it's not sufficient. Uh, you can't just take that one away and say, well, you don't need the apostolic instruction, you know, the teaching, or you don't need someone who is authorized that you can say, yes, this person is, stands in, in good stead and uh, is presenting authentic material. Yeah, I mean, that's such a fascinating point because, I mean, he's he's not. he's When when he has the chance to, and, and this verse that is pointed to so frequently to talk about the yeah. Scriptura, he doesn't. He doesn't take that chance to say, no, it's just Scripture. It, you said it's also these things and these things and these things. And later on, he writes to Timothy about the church being the pillar and bulwark of, you know, when when mm-hmm. things are called into question and when you're unsure of your faith, he doesn't tell Timothy, open up the Scriptures and figure it out. He says, look, the church is what will stand and teach you. This is the pillar of faith in which you should kind of cling to and and use to understand what what to do, what to believe, it doesn't say scripture at that point. So yeah. I mean, and that's really the best. I don't know. Maybe I missed some some enormous pieces of of the Bible of scripture when I was looking into this. But that was the the, the main thing that I found that seems mm-hmm. to underpin a lot of what Protestants would say as as evidence for sola scriptura. And I I don't know. It's not. It's not very strong of a support yeah. for Soul Scripture. Yeah. In fact, it supports kind of the opposite, as you've unpacked here just now. Yeah. In fact, if I was Protestant, one thing that would really bother me is that there's no, you never see Christians in the New Testament actually practicing Soul Scriptura. You never see Christians uh, testing whether or not uh, the apostles' teachings is biblical or not. You know, it's not like they pull out their pocket Tanakhs 
and look up stuff. You know, it's just not there. And uh, and I know in your mind immediately you're thinking of the Brians in Acts 17, right? Did I read your mind? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's where it goes, right? That's where it goes. Yeah. But I I think that too is is fairly easily dispatched, right? Yeah, they're Jews. <laughs> you know, they're not Christians. And uh, Paul's teaching about how the Messiah must suffer and uh, die and rise on the third day and how Jesus fulfills messianic prophecies. And uh, so they're noble-minded because unlike the other Jews in Thessalonica, right, the Bereans actually pulled out the Tanakh and, and tried to see whether what Paul said is true about the Messiah. But And then it says the next verse, and many became believers. So this are, these are Jews. These are not believers, right? Now, picture this. When I, I teach this in my middle school class, I do this thing called the breakfast in Berea, or lunchtime in Berea, excuse me. Let's pretend, you know, we're sitting there with, with Paul, right? Paul's preaching about the Messiah. We're Bereans. We're pulling out our Tanakhs, which is kind of funny because, of course, they didn't have copies of the Tanakh. And it's like, hey, this guy, I think he's right. Jesus is the Messiah. So we accept Jesus as the Messiah. We are baptized. We're Christians. So Paul says, hey, why don't we break for lunch, and, and then I'll give you some more catechesis. And so Paul says, well, Timothy here has made a nice barbecue. We have uh, some pulled pork. You know, we have uh, all sorts of great stuff, so help yourself. Now, you know, both you and me, we're Jews, right? We just became Christians. We're pretty sure the Tanakh says you can't eat pork, right? That's just not lawful. So what do we do? Well, we could pull out our Tanakhs and test this against the Bible, right? Where in the Bible, Paul, does it say that you can eat pork? It doesn't say it anywhere in the Old Testament, right? And uh, so Paul would say, well, you know, Peter had a revelation. All things are clean, and Jesus, you know, taught this, and so therefore it's made clean. And then you're like, okay, well, that's not in the Bible, but... You know, and then it goes, okay, well, let's talk about uh, Matthew, Matthew 23. Jesus says uh, that um, you have read where it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, you know, do not, uh, you know, do not infringe against your brother. You know, the whole thing with 22. It's like, what do you do? You search the Tanakh. How do you confirm that? Because he's actually quoting from the law, right? From, I think, Leviticus. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And Jesus is saying something different. You know, if they were Bible Christians, guess what? We'd end up being Jews again, right? <laughs> because it's not in Scripture. But the, the point I'm making is this. Once you become a Christian, then whatever the Messiah taught, that is the norm, whether it's in Scripture or not in Scripture. So if Jesus makes all food clean and you believe that he truly is the Son of God and Messiah— then all foods are clean, regardless if you find it in the Bible. So you don't find evidence of Christians practicing sola scriptura, but we do find Christians following the instructions of the apostles, whether it's written or not written, like it says in Second Thessalonians uh, 2.15, I believe. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a great example. And I want to be in your middle school Bible study class. It's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of fun. Hey, there's plenty of room. I'd love to have you. <laughs> okay. I think too. The third thing you said is this: is this, the practical idea of interpretation. Who interprets yeah. this? I mean, I had Joe Heschmeyer on the show a little bit ago talking about the papacy. Uh, he's a fantastic book called Pope Peter Out from Catholic Answers Press, and it's wonderful. And when I asked him about the papacy, why do we need a pope? 
I think was the question or something along those lines. He took a stab at it, and his first his first answer was almost purely practical. I don't think he even quoted any scripture, and and mm. I don't think that we we need to in some cases here just to look at practically how soul scripture does not work. I mean, it's yeah. not it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize, and and I mean, I'm not a rocket scientist, and I looked around the, the landscape of evangelical Christianity that I was a part of, and I I said. And for me, this came to a head looking at the idea of same-sex marriage because this was at the fore at the time um, when I was looking at the Catholic Church. And I looked at all these different pastors and denominations and theologians and evangelists and, and writers and bloggers and speakers saying different things. Now, some weren't looking at the Bible for their ideas. Um, and, and I mean, that, that happens more often than more and more often in the evangelical world that the Bible isn't mm-hmm. even necessarily um, looked at to find conclusions on different things. But then even those that are looking at the Bible, they're, they're looking at, at the same scriptures, the same texts, the same, yeah. you know, but coming to radically different conclusions. And this happens not just on marriage and, and, and gender, it happens on, on, on baptism, on salvation. I mean, goodness sakes, on how we're saved, like how we are Christian, how do we know that we are right with God? That is under... I mean, all kinds of different ways we can understand that as as Protestant Christians. So, from a practical point of view, I mean, forget the fact that we don't know if uh, the, you know where the alone comes from or what the bounds of Scripture are. Just looking at the practical application of this idea, it's it's obvious that even on the large things, even on the very massive things, what it means to be a Christian, like this is the the, the bedrock thing you have to figure out as a Protestant, I, I think, how to follow yeah. Jesus. Even those things, there is not agreement. Yeah, and one of my favorite passages, and and you're talking about whose interpretation is uh, definitive, is in Second Peter uh, one sixteen and following. It's a really interesting passage because. Apparently, people were having different interpretations of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, some apparently thought maybe it's symbolic that you know the Moses and Elijah appeared and Jesus was transfigured. Some apparently thought it was a myth, right? That it didn't really happen. It's all some you know symbolic. It, it's not historical. And Peter chimes in in 16, and he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's saying, look, we were there. We eyewitnessed the event. And he said, and for he received honor and glory from God the Father when that unique declaration came to him from the majestic glory, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. And he says, we ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were still with him on the holy mount. Moreover, we possess the prophetic message that is altogether reliable. And you do well to be attentive to it as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So he's, he's saying, you know, in regards to what happened here, we know what's true. And, of course, he's talking as an apostle. The apostles were eyewitnesses of what happened. And then he says, moreover, we have this prophetic word, this prophetic message of the Holy Spirit that's given to us that's altogether reliable. So we should follow the apostolic teaching as a lamp, even in regards to understanding what is Scripture, you know? So 
he gives a definitive interpretation of transfiguration. If that's true for the transfiguration, certainly uh, apostolic teaching should be normative for understanding other things in Scripture as well. <laughs> that's a great, fantastic example. I mean, what a, what a gem in there that you found, Gary. Because, I mean, yeah. of course, if other people are misinterpreting that event, what happened there? Well, here's Peter, who was there, uh, in apostolic authority, to come and clear mm-hmm. that up. So why would that principle change? I mean, it's the same, it's the same, I think, uh, application looking at, say, the Council of Jerusalem, for example. It mm-hmm. wasn't as if, as you said, when these things happened, the, the apostles went and consulted scripture to see what scripture said about, well, should we include these people? Should we do these things? No, that council met in authority, the apostles, and made decisions. Yeah. And of course, I mean, as an evangelical reading that, and in my limited understanding of church history, because in most evangelical traditions, your church history kind of ends at the end of Acts. Well, I assumed that, well, the apostles met like this, and that was kind of the first and last meeting like this, and they gave us the Bible, right. and then we now take our Bible and interpret that. But of course, wait a second, actually the church kept meeting like that and still meets like that. I mean, right. that's a shock to the system. And maybe that's yeah. more of a normative way of understanding our faith in this apostolic yeah. tradition and the authority of the church to interpret these things and understand these things versus going back and these Jews pouring over the scriptures to see what was what was supposed yeah. to be right. They, they would have made a different decision if that was the case. They wouldn't have, I don't think, yeah. came to the same conclusions. Right. Yeah. One of my favorite passages is First uh, John uh, 1, uh, 3. Where what we've what we've seen, what we heard, you know, he talks about how we touch with our hands, right? We see with our eyes, hers with our ears. He says, "What we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you, that you may have fellowship with us, for our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son Jesus Christ." If you think about that, that's interesting because how do you get into fellowship with the Father and the Son? You you get into fellowship with the Father and Son by having fellowship with the apostles. And by remaining with the apostles, that's the whole message of First John. By remaining in the fellowship of the apostles, not going ahead or going astray, but remaining with them, that's how you have fellowship with them, at the church, and then through that you have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And you know, notice he doesn't say, you know, if you have uh, fellowship with what's written in Scripture, you know, <laughs> then you have fellowship with the Father and the Son. But again, it's anchored in that apostolic witness. In this case, you know, very tangible. You know, what we saw with our eyes, what we heard with our ears, what we touched with our hands concerns the word of life, right? So uh, that can't be reproduced on the pages of Scripture. You have to assume Scripture is already authoritative and just move from there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Those are some great points. Okay. The thesis is that there's a real problem with my former Protestant Christian worldview. If my Bible is missing books. And we talked again in episode 62 in depth about why Protestants remove books from the Bible rather than the common kind of misnomer that Catholics added them. We talked about the canon pretty well being settled and unchallenged until the Reformation and Luther's kind of calling into question of some of these books. We even talked about how some of the church fathers who may have had questions about the inclusion of these books in the canon, but how in spite of some of that questioning, the church kind of remained firm in its inclusion of these disputed books in the canon. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to go in too much depth here. Again, I point listeners back to episode 62, but can you give us a quick sketch of, of which books we're talking about here and maybe a, a thumbnail sketch too of why they aren't in Protestant Bibles anymore? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, well, Catholics call them Deuterocanon, Protestants call them Apocrypha. Uh, for Catholics, that's seven books, which would be uh, Wisdom, Sirach, Tobit, Judith, Baruch, and First and Second Maccabees. Also, two chapters in Daniel and some sections in Esther. So, all that would be known as the Deuterocanonical books. And basically, um, why they're in the Bible is because Jesus and the apostles knew which books were inspired. They used these books and uh, used them as scripture. And they handed on the canon to the early church. And these books, I, in my uh, case for the Deuterocanon, canon, why Catholic Bibles are bigger, I show that. Uh, we know that these books were there from the very beginning. And what's interesting is Judaism doesn't adopt a single canon, you know, a collection of books until after the Christian era. Most likely, I think, before uh, 235, excuse me, 135 AD, sometime before that. Um, and the reason for it is because Judaism, there wasn't a Judaism, there were Judaisms before that. And it really is after the, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 that there was one sect of Judaism, the Pharisees, they emerged, and they are the ones that make the Tanakh. They, they're the ones that fix the canon. Um, and then right afterwards happens the second Jewish revolt, which was catastrophic for Judaism. And what's interesting is in my research, Christians knew that Jews accepted a different collection than what they use. And so early on, you find some Christian writings where the early church fathers were trying to determine which books the Jews were using, because if you're going to evangelize, you got to use the same authority, right? Mutual accepted authority. And so uh, many Protestants look at these lists and say, see, they're giving a Christian canon, but actually they aren't. Um, But anyway, um, we go all the way to the fourth century with St. Jerome, he was, the, he was commissioned to make a fresh translation of Scripture uh, into Latin. And Jerome uh, Jerome did something interesting. Unlike his predecessors who copied the Old Testament from the Septuagint, he knew Hebrew. And he knew that the Greek Old Testament had different versions. And the Hebrews only had one version, one manuscript tradition. So he assumed that, well, this must be the one tradition that goes all the way back to the original. And he came up with this idea of Hebrew verite or Hebrew truth. Whatever was in that Hebrew text was scripture. Whatever wasn't was not scripture. And so that led him, the first person that I could find, any Christian, to call the Deuterocanon what Protestants call today the Apocrypha. And this is in the 380s. Um and he's translating the Vulgate. He's putting prefaces saying these books are apocrypha. And Christians are up in arms about it because this is not the historic faith. And so there were uh, three councils that met in North Africa that reaffirmed the historic Christian canon, Old Testament, and the New Testament. The, the councils of Hippo, Carthage, um, actually two Carthaginian councils. And uh, – it's interesting. They affirm the New Testament everybody uses today, and they affirm the Catholic Old Testament with the seven books. Um, but the problem is the cat was already out of the bag when the church had did these councils. Jerome's Vulgate was circulating, and these prefaces were circulating where he calls them Apocrypha. So there was 
as you move from Jerome to the Middle Ages, th- there were people who actually wholesale, you know, adopted Jerome's view because he was kind of the last word in biblical scholarship. There were others that uh, rejected it, and there were others that tried to make Jerome orthodox on the point, so they twist language. And that brings up the Reformation. And I actually, I'm going to re, re, um, release a video about this. It's really cool on Martin Luther's flip-flop, because apparently Martin Luther was one of those who was with the church on the Deuterocanon originally. When he nailed his 95 Thesis in 1517, apparently he believed these books were scripture. Even after his break with the church, he used them in debate to serve as proof. And uh, there's three written debates. We have him citing them as scripture, as proofs for doctrine. And then, uh, like we mentioned on the, that one episode, uh, Luther's in a debate over purgatory with Johann Eck. Eck cites Second Maccabees 12.46. It's a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from their sins. And Luther pulls the parachute. You know, he pulls the ripcord. And he says, these books are not canonical. They can't be entered into debate to serve as proof. And he appeals to Jerome. And from that moment on, Protestants could never give the Deuterocanon the full authority that they once enjoyed. They always had to be held in like useful reading, but can't be confirmed doctrine or anything like that. And then eventually even that eroded where they turned out to be mere human writings, not particularly useful to read. And eventually they're removed from Protestant Bibles altogether which brings us to where we are today, where I think most Protestants aren't even aware uh, what the Apocrypha is, or if they know what it is, they, they're unaware that they were part of the Protestant Bible, Luther's Bible, uh, Zwingli, Calvin, all of them had these books in it. <laughs> um, yeah, and so, you know, that's that's the problem we have, is we have to remind our separated brothers and sisters about their heritage, that the Bible they have today is not the historic Protestant Bible, and it certainly is not the historic Christian Bible, because the historic Christian Bible included these books intermixed with the other books of the Old Testament without any qualification or distinction. I guess for me it's the same thing as, as I, and I did this as an evangelical, of realizing that not all churches down their history worshipped the way that I worshipped with a sermon yeah. and some prayer and some music and communion maybe once a month. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, realizing that for me was an enormous shock to my system that I was not in line with how the church had been worshiping for the majority of church history. And then you find out that the Bible that you're using to define your faith isn't the Bible that was used for the majority of church history. And that's kind of a double shock. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. um, Yeah. It isn't even the Bible used in the new Testament. Uh, Hebrews 1135 references the Maccabean martyrs in the context of things that are attested to in the Bible, you know, like, uh, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, and he adds this. So apparently uh, the author of Hebrews had Second Maccabees in it, <laughs> you know? So it's like there are these blipper verses in the New Testament where they just assume you know this is Scripture, but if you look, you know, try to find out who is mentioned in uh, Hebrews 11.35b, uh, there's just no one in the Protestant Old Testament that matches up to that description. <laughs> That's very interesting. So we've pushed a little bit 
against the idea of the Bible being the sole rule of faith to begin mm-hmm. with. But it, if we grant that, as I understood it to be as an evangelical Christian, there then arises a major problem in my view. Because if that Bible that I read and, and dug into and meditated upon and, and drive my understanding of faith from had books removed from it, which it certainly seems were meant to be there all along, and that becomes a real problem for my understanding of faith. When, when certain things that are taught in those books might be just missing from my Bible and subsequently missing from my faith. In other words, yeah. as my friend Austin said to me, you know, what's, what's at stake if these books are missing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny how I, I've noticed that people really never think about it. And one of the brush-off comments is, well, you know, the Deuterocanon doesn't really say anything new. It just pretty much repeats what we find in the Protocanon. So, you know, there, the, the, we don't need the Deuterocanon to be saved, blah, 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 right? My I, Here's my Bushback response. This is kind of smoke them out. I say, well, okay, if there really is no difference between these books and it's basically the same, then why not for the sake of union and fellowship, why don't you just accept them as scripture? And, and then you'll get pushback. Then all of a sudden, you know, the reasons, oh, no, I can't because X, Y, and Z. So I, I don't take that seriously because if that were true, then why not just accept it? I mean, just to uh, fulfill Christ's words that they will be one. <laughs> That's a great response. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it, it, uh, the Reformers believed, you know, there was contents that didn't square with the gospel. That's why they wanted to get rid of these books. And uh, so I, I think it's kind of um, disingenuous for people to say, well, eh, it doesn't make a difference. They're all the same, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, historically, that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, I guess it's a fantastic point. I mean, if those books were just benign and, and, and didn't yeah. teach things that, you know, were, were impacting the faith in some degree, whether negatively, yeah. if you're a reformer, or positively, if you're the church down through the ages, well, there wouldn't be a need to, to, to ruffle the, any feathers and, and take those books right. away, right? They obviously had some kind of an impact. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, even apart from the doctrinal stuff, you know, like purgatory and free will and things like that, these books represent the doctrinal development of the Jews from 200 BC to right around you know 50 years before Christ, and there through God's providence, there is a lot of doctrinal development in terms of that lays the groundwork for the Trinity in these books. In fact, on my channel Apocrypha Apocalypse, I I did a couple of live shows with William Albrecht. And we went into, as you know, William debates Muslims and atheists and stuff, and Trinity is part of his uh, forte. And so we went into the books of Sirach and Wisdom and Baruch, and we showed not only that these verses anticipate Jesus Christ and shine light into, especially on the Gospel of John, but um, it was used in the early church to formulate Trinitarian doctrine, which are very key doctrines. Uh, so, you know, even apart from Catholic, Protestant, uh, you know, uh, intramural contention or whatever, uh, Protestants are missing out because they're missing this necessary step that leads from Judaism to the forefront of Christianity. Yeah, I think that's really fundamental to underscore. I mean, 
this yeah. this is the the thing that I think evangelicals, uh, I don't know what all Protestants, I can speak from my own tradition, understand that this this great silence where kind of nothing happened. Yeah, the, the Jewish, right. the Old Testament ends, and the Jewish people didn't hear from God for 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 centuries, and nothing changed, nothing developed, nobody had any new thoughts or anything. I mean, it does yeah. seem, as I say this out loud, it seems like a little bit of a, a ridiculous thing to think. But mm-hmm. this was the idea. And so our Bibles jump from the end of the Old Testament into the New Testament, and there's this great silence. And then suddenly we see Jesus on the scene and these different kinds of Jewish uh, Jewish believers, different sects of Jews. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, in all, in, in, in reality, there was great development happening in, in, in the world in terms of I mean, technology and, and, yeah. and society. P- push that aside. But then, of course, in, in theology, matters of doctrine and, and how God was dealing with these people, he didn't just abandon them to 600 years of complete silence and, and yeah. nothing going on, right? The, they were still talking and, and, and yeah, thinking right. and working things out, right? And as you said, I think that's, that's really critical to understand. If, if my Bible is, is my sole source of understanding my faith, and it's, it's missing that really critical link in the development of what the Jews were thinking up until, up until when Christ came, that's kind of a big deal to not yeah. have that context, right? Yeah, yeah. It makes Christianity look artificial, quite frankly. Um, I, I've had dialogue with uh, Jews who uh, had questions about Christian doctrine. And to them, it just seems like Christianity is obviously pagan. It, it couldn't possibly have come from Judaism. If you think about it, you know, even in the Protestant Bible, you have the Hebrew scriptures, right, with a little bit of Aramaic. And then all of a sudden, bang, the Gospels are in Greek, you know, <laughs> like overnight, suddenly God's revealing things in Greek. Uh, but, you know, uh, what I do is I remind them that their Tanakh, like Protestant Bibles, don't are missing these uh, latter books where God spoke to his people and speaking to them in Greek and using Greek terminology and philosophical ideas where they express Jewish ideas like the Greeks did. And, you know, and they have this development about God's wisdom as being God. And yet, uh, in some sense, uh, I got, you know, like John one, the word was with God and yet the word was God, you know, that's kind of where the deuterocanons leave off. And John basically says, and the word became flesh. And uh, even that, I think, is from Sirach 24. But I don't want to spoil it if anybody wants to check out the videos. Okay, that was a little shameless plug. But still, you know, it's once the Jews realize that, that I've talked to, it's like, no, you're missing out on a whole, you know, this uh, first century Judaism and first century B.C. Judaism is cut out of your Tanakh. And so, you know, it's artificial because you're missing part of your own story. And uh, if you look at these uh, deuterocanonical texts, you see that uh, many Jews held these as authoritative scripture. And they say some very surprising things about God that you can very easily segue into Christian theology. So the, the, the recap basically is that Christianity is Jewish. It's the fulfillment of Judaism. And uh, but, you know, if I think if you're operating with a a Protestant Bible, that case is a little harder to make because of those so-called 400 years of silence. Yeah, that's really fascinating. 
Okay, so you mentioned something earlier, and I think we're going to dovetail back around to this, but if something is found in the Deuterocanonical books, but those books were effectively removed from my Protestant Bible, I'd be yeah. potentially missing out on something, say, that God wanted to be part of my Christian faith life. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there are, are several examples of this, and I'm thinking of what you just mentioned, and it's kind of, uh, I don't know, ironic is the right word, but interesting that, that Luther challenged the apocryphal, the Deuterocanonical books, to begin mm-hmm. with, over the issue of purgatory, because it was found in the Deuterocanonical yeah. books uh, of the Old Testament, but but not in his, his worldview, his understanding of the faith. I think there's one example of something that if my Protestant Bible doesn't have these books, well, that thing seems a lot less likely. I wouldn't even maybe know about that. I mean, yeah. I'm thinking of this. Like, I mean, I'm, prayers of the dead, purgatory, those kind of things. I would consider that to be kind of, kind of idol worship as an evangelical Christian. But actually, fairly blatantly, that was in the Bible after the Reformation, and Luther challenged that in the Bible. So I want to maybe flesh out this example first for a little bit, and then I want to know if there are maybe other examples of kind of similar things. You mentioned that the Trinity also is something that can kind of be found being developed in these books. But let's sit here for a minute. So, I mean, this is something mm-hmm. that was in the Deuterocanon, in all Bibles for all Christians, leading up to when Luther kind of challenged this. And and he, I mean, it's funny that he challenged the Deuterocanon over this thing. So obviously it was in there. He, yeah. did, he, he challenged that, pushed back, those were removed. So there's one thing that was objectively in the Bible, something the Catholics practice and understand that's been removed. So, I mean, that has a massive impact on how non-Catholic Christians, missing that from their Bible, understand their faith. I, I hadn't heard about yeah. purgatory until I read C.S. Lewis, which, I mean, he wasn't Catholic, <laughs> but interesting, interesting kind of juxtaposition there. What is the impact of yeah. this being removed and then, then, then non-Christian Catholics or non-Catholic Christians just not having that in, in their lexicon? That's, that's kind yeah. of enormous, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, it kind of dovetails back to what we talked about with Sola Scriptura, too. Uh, the idea of Sola Scriptura is that Scripture is the norm that sets all norms and the standard that sets all standards. And and so Bible truth is known from the Bible, right? It's the sole source from which you, you know, the infallible source that you pull this information from. Well, the problem was with Luther, it was his theology wasn't biblical, and so he uses his theology of the Bible, or excuse me, faith alone, justification by faith alone, to uh, change the scripture or determine what is canonical and what isn't. So it's like doctrine should come from scripture, but with Luther, it turns out that doctrine makes scripture, which in turn confirms doctrine. So you just go around in this vicious circle. Um, and... Uh, Protestants do the same thing today. They will, you bring up the Deuterocanon, they'll say, well, that's obviously false because it teaches unbiblical doctrine like purgatory, prayers to the saints, uh, free will, whatever, right? And uh, and it's, you point out, no, you're begging the question because if it is biblical, then those are biblical doctrines. Uh, what you're doing is you're using your theology to determine Scripture and then using what's left of Scripture to determine your theology. And it just goes around and around. And I, I was listening. I'm listening to a lot of videos, you know, with COVID here at uh, YouTube. And I just heard this one Protestant. It was brought to him that you're begging the question, doing this. 
and it's circular reasoning. And he's like, yeah, circular reasoning, but it's the right circle. <laughs> and that was, that's so, uh, that's like saying, yeah, the hole is always greater than the part, but th- this was the right part. You know, it doesn't make any sense because, you know, there has to be something external from the scripture to tell us what is the scripture and what isn't and what is true doctrine and what isn't. And, you know, Protestants try to use the Bible to kind of create a canon. It's really a fool's errand because ultimately it just goes around and around like a dog chasing its tail. And you're, I mean, you're exactly right, Gary. Of course you're right. You're always right, Gary. That's why they'll have you on the show. <laughs> but this is, how often do you, I mean, I had I had Carlo Broussard from Catholic Answers on this show a while back talking about purgatory. Uh-huh. I mean, that's a settled question. If not, if those books, well, not, I mean, I shouldn't say a settled question, but it's much more weight to an evangelical, to a Protestant, if those books were still in the Bible. Because yeah. then they're, hey, this thing is biblical. Instead of the response being, no, it's not biblical because it's not in the Bible. But you go, whoa, 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 back it up. But it was in the Bible. Like this, you know, yeah. that becomes a really interesting, as you say, a really interesting thing. I'm, I'm thinking of a, of a conversation uh, that became a kind of debate that became <laughs> almost came to blows with a good friend of mine. And I think sometimes, I think, I think most converts w- would agree that sometimes family and friends are the hardest ones to evangelize when you've moved from being an evangelical or a Protestant uh, oh, sure. to being a Catholic. And uh, this good friend of, uh, of mine and I often have conversations, and they often come to blows at the end. And we, became, we remain <laughs> friends, and we, we carry on. But it got to the point where, where what he was saying, and I would have said the same thing as an evangelical, that how we understand Scripture, the key to Scripture is Scripture. Right? If it's God's yeah. word, if it's God's word, scripture kind of interprets scripture. But then mm-hmm. I I would bring him John six, which looks a lot like Christ is saying, Eat my flesh, right? Very literally. He repeats it, he he doubles down on it. All mm-hmm. the early church fathers understood this to be this literal kind of you know, the first Christians understood this. Paul speaks quite literally in the New Testament about this. Doesn't right. doesn't doesn't kind of have uh, add any qualifiers about like seems to look like or might be. Yet you know my my friend was unmoved and said no 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 I don't think that's how it's supposed to be interpreted. Scripture interprets scripture, and what he's talking about there is his sacrifice on the cross and not actually giving of his bread, uh, giving of his body as as bread and wine and. And I go, well, look, I'm, I'm using other scriptural evidence in my examples. I'm using Paul. I'm using Old Testament typology to, to show you how I think it's supposed to be like this. Never mind that the, the early church agrees with me. But here we are both using scripture to mm-hmm. interpret scripture, just kind of yeah. piling up verses against each other and yeah. not really getting anywhere without appealing to some kind of out, outside authority. And then here you have a thing, you have this, this issue of, well, if these books were kind of removed, then these these examples of of why Catholics do this or believe this, and why all Christians should do these things and believe these things, well, then you, you've 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 taken out the the thing at the knees because you're missing part of what was always in there. It's gone mm-hmm. now, and this this is how I can grow up as an evangelical without really understanding this thing, this beautiful thing of the, of the communion of the saints and prayers for the dead and purgatory, I see it as idol worship or saw it as idol worship because I was, I was missing that part of my Bible. I mean, that's, yeah. that's kind of freaky. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of stacking the deck in a way. If you think of the, the Bible as a deck of cards, um, certain cards aren't dealt. You know, they just aren't. 
uh, yeah, uh, we could go, I could do a whole program on, you know, the clear verses, interpret the unclear verses and what constitutes a clear verse. And, um, and again, it's their theology drives the text. It's not the text really driving the theology. And it's not just Protestants. I'm, I'm not picking on them. Everybody approaches scripture with certain colored glasses. The question is whether your colored glasses were that of the apostles, right? Because if they are, the only unclear verses are the ones that we're not really sure what the Greek is saying. You know, otherwise everything should make perfect sense. But like we mentioned before, there are these blipper verses, like Marcus Grody calls them, where it's it's just skipped over, ignored because it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But for a Catholic, I, I know my experience. I don't know how your experience is, but uh, the the unclear verses are usually the ones that everybody's unclear exactly what's being said. You know. It's not doctrinal. It's it, you can read the whole of John six, and there's not a single problem or difficulty. Yeah, and you hit on that 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 lens idea, right? That there is theology drives the interpretation. I mean, whether you yeah. say scripture interprets scripture, or whether you say that you're trying to find the clear, plain sense of this, you find that clear, plain sense. You, the scripture you choose to interpret your, your your other scripture, it's it is through a lens, and and I think you're absolutely right there, Gary. That the the lens that the catholic church tries to take i it will i mean i'm a convert i believe this is the right lens because it's the lens yeah. of the apostles yeah. i can i can think of talking to a guy one time i told the story before in the podcast who said to me uh, they heard about my journey and, and my my conversion i was wasn't catholic yet, i was on the on the way and they said well why is older any better like why do you want to find the older church like why do, why is finding the the ancient church you know the, the important thing and at the time, I couldn't really answer the question. I, I was a bit, you know, this was an older person, much more schooled, wise, more degrees than I had. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm yeah. a bit, maybe I'm wrong. But, I, you know, if I had him on the phone now, I said, no, older, it's not older that's better. It's interpreting my faith through the lens of the apostles. And that, and the, the Catholic Church carries that on. So it, it is an ancient lens, but the, the ancientness is, is, the apostles is the first lens that was used to interpret the Bible, and then that's just kind of passed on through apostolic succession. That is that is the key to understanding Scripture. And, hey, mm-hmm. that's the key to what makes up Scripture, right? And what books belong yeah. in the Bible to begin with is looking at that tradition and what was handed on and passed down, right? Yeah, having fellowship with the apostolic church is to have fellowship with the Father and the Son. You know, it's the same thing. It's yeah. You plug into that that vision of uh, Christ through his inspired apostles. Okay, so purgatory, or prayers for the dead, is, is pretty explicit in the Deuterocanonical books, and you know, that mm-hmm. being removed, I mean, Luther removed them for a reason, because he didn't like that idea, or had issue with that idea, and those were, were kind of challenging to him. That's at least part of why they were removed. You mentioned the Trinity being developed there. Are there other examples of this, of of things that we as Catholics do uh, or were done through the ages that are present in the Deuterocanonical books or there's some credence led to them? Are there other examples of this in in these books? Um, Well, yeah, it depends on what a person would accept as being credible, you know, because I could point out things that are Catholic in thought that aren't accepted by Protestants. Uh, Calvinists, for example, didn't like Sirach because teaches free will. You know, not all Protestants deny free will, but for them, that's a problem. The intercession of the saints. Uh, actually, at the end of Second Maccabees, you have 
uh, where uh, Jeremiah appears to uh, Judas Maccabeus in a dream, and Onias the high priest as well. Both of them have been dead for quite a while. And he says, this is Jeremiah who constantly prays for the, the holy city. And so, yeah, prayers for the saints because he's still praying for the holy city while in glory, or at least the, uh, you know, what we would call the uh, the limbus patrum, you know, the, the place of, of the fathers before heaven was open. Um, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of things like that, uh, sacramental aspects like in Tobit, uh, using a uh, fish guts basically as a, a sacramental to ward off uh, a demon, right? And Protestants say, well, see, that's magic. But no, it's sacramental theology. You know, it's using physical stuff to uh, produce supernatural uh, effect. Um, yeah, it's just there's so much in there. Um, we could probably have dozens of programs just going through the Deuterio canon, <laughs> pointing out cool stuff. Uh, you know, there's hints at the Incarnation. Um, Baruch, I think it's 315. I could be wrong on the reference where he says, this is our God. And he says, and he was seen on earth conversed with men. Uh, and, of course, no one's ever seen God. So when was God on earth and conversed with men? Well, guess what? At the Incarnation, Right. The incarnation, after the incarnation, God's on earth and is seen and converses with us. Um, there's just a whole bunch of really cool stuff in those books. Um, and unfortunately, like I said, uh, because of that, uh, the Protestant theology became the norm that set the norm of Scripture. Unfortunately, a lot of this is lost for many Protestants today, probably most Protestants. Yeah, and I guess I'm thinking of this too. I mean, I think there are good reasons you're, you're kind of fleshing out here uh, of things that develop in doctrine of, of prayers of the saints, of prayers for the dead, of kind of these different ideas and aspects that clearly uh, would would lend some credence to certain ways of, of doing Christianity, certain Catholic practices, and kind of underpin those things and explain mm -hmm. the development of some kind of doctrine and stuff. But I guess, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter whether we find things, you know, in there that's important. If that was Scripture, I mean, God wanted it to be Scripture for a reason. There's, yeah, there's right. a reason why those books were in there. I mean, even if they were kind of weird or unimportant or uninteresting, if if those were in the canon, if if the, that's what God wanted to be in the Bible, yeah. I mean, who are we to question why He wants it in there? It, it it should be in there, no matter how strange or difficult it might have been to decipher. I mean, we yeah. we can we can find things in there that 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 make you go, hmm. Well, this is a thing that kind of demonstrates why this practice is what we do as Catholics. Even if it wasn't, though, there's a reason why they belong in in in, yeah. in the canon, right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, yeah, that's a great point because the Judo canon is really no different than the Proto canon. There are odd things in the Proto canon. There are things that maybe would be boring to some people, or you have to wonder, God, why is this inspired as opposed to something else? You've got numbers yeah. in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, but then the answer is God wants it inspired and that there's some deeper meaning in there. And he wants us to dig into them so we can pull that meaning out, understand it. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, I don't think it's the point that uh, they're boring or uninteresting. I think you've shown to us how they are relevant and scriptural, and even if they weren't, they'd still be important in there. But I wonder then, yeah. as we wrap up, Gary, if the Protestant listener who has heard all of this, you know, they've heard why these books kind of belong in the canon, why what important information they contain, 
And let's be honest, it's God's word. So if they're if they're missing, you know, <laughs> they should be in there anyway. Maybe. I wonder if you can make the case, though. Maybe it's already been made here, um, and and you've convinced everyone listening, and maybe they have no doubts in their mind at all about why they should be reading these in, in their in their Bible. But can you make the case for us one last time? You know, why the Protestant Bible, especially if it's the sole rule of faith for the Protestant, why is it just too darn small? And and what's the huge problem with those books being? not part of the Protestant Bible. Yeah, um, well, it's basically everything we've said so far. I mean, uh, the problem is, first, they're missing the Word of God. The whole counsel of God is missing. You know, there are uh, parts missing. In fact, very important parts. Uh, they're missing four centuries of continuing revelation that God gave to the Jews. Very important revelation that develops the ideas that ultimately is brought to light in the New Testament. So if you don't have these books, it's almost like, Trinitarian doctrine just seems to pop out of nowhere, where if you see the development that occurred in Judaism beforehand, you can see, yeah, this is part of the continuity. God has prepared his people. Um, you know, you have all these weird discontinuities of Hebrew scriptures suddenly become God inspires Greek, uh, you know, just uh, and uh, the analogy I used last program, I uh, use it again here is. If you view the the Bible as the Supreme Court that judges all doctrine, it's the ultimate appeal for doctrine. If you're missing judges on the court or have wrong judges, that can affect the decision. You know, now we're we're coming up with a confirmation hearing for uh, Supreme Court justice. Well, you know, without certain judges on the bench, uh, the the court will rule a certain way. And the same thing's true with Scripture. If you don't have all the judges, all the proper components of scripture there and you're a solo scripturist, a Bible alone Christian, then you have a problem because your Bible is not going to give you the full counsel of God as God intended it. <laughs> That's a great point. And I can yeah. think, I mean, I, I mentioned before when I was thinking of the idea of guardian angels, which was, isn't really a big thing for me in my evangelical upbringing. I didn't really realize I had a guardian angel, wasn't really talked about, wasn't really an emphasis. Well, the same thing goes for something like like purgatory or or the prayers of the saints. You know, mm -hmm. it's not really a, a, a thing we talk about, or or in fact, if we talked about it, it's often to disparage Catholics who practice as kind of idolatry. So, but but look, when I became Catholic and realized that this whole world of all of the Catholics and Christians who live before me are praying for me, and I can ask them for my prayers, and access this giant, like, I mean, this huge communion of, of believers that yeah. I had no idea was even a thing. Gary, if my Bible had the Deuterocanon in it, well then, as I'm weighing these things out, and, and growing in the faith, and reading my Bible, like you say, like that judge being there on the bench, that those aspects would have at least had some yeah. more weight in my faith. I would have thought of those things or encountered those things. Or when I disparaged the Catholics for believing these things, I would have had to look at my Bible and go, well, maybe, maybe they're right because I see some evidence here. Mm -hmm. Because those are missing, well, there's a critical thing then missing from my faith. And, and what a shame I didn't have access to yeah. those saints for yeah. the 15 years that I was a Protestant before I realized this existed. I mean... Yeah. I, I wept when I realized that I had a guardian angel when I first heard that from from a, re, listening to a Scott Hahn tape talking about different Catholic sacramentals and beliefs. I, I couldn't believe it. Never mind realizing that you have all these saints praying for you 
that you can call upon to to pray for you. I mean, yeah. what a shame to miss out on yeah. that, right? Yeah, you have the the largest prayer chain possible <laughs> in heaven. You know, like you said, all through history, all the righteous people praying, and and you can ask them to intercede for you to God. And yeah, it really is beautiful, and it it does change your whole worldview because it's no longer, you know, heaven and earth aren't divided, but rather uh, heaven and earth are very much uh, united. You know, through this communion in Christ body the church yeah fantastic gary as always it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you i always have a lot of fun i hope the listeners enjoy this i, I don't really care because i do <laughs> it's always, as long as we're having fun yeah, that's all as long as we're having fun i don't know who else is but it's a great time <laughs> no i love all the listeners they're fantastic and they help make this thing possible uh and hopefully they enjoy it where where else can they go i mentioned your youtube channel really briefly you mentioned it i want to know more because i've just been devouring those videos and clicking the bell so I get the next one coming awesome. up. There's a bunch that are coming out in the future. Uh, where can they go to find out more about what you're doing and the things that you're writing and and, and recording and broadcasting? Yeah. yeah, well, I'm on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Just go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org. I have a Monday through Friday show, which you were on. You know, I have fantastic guests like you and other people, <laughs> and we dive into apologetics. Yeah, my uh, Apocrypha Apocalypse Project is uh, just got off the the, uh, the ground, and I really need help as far as subscribers because you know how those engines are, that uh, you, you don't get visibility unless people subscribe. But basically what it is is the, the subject of the Diderot canon. I have all these books I, I wrote, I researched, you know, and uh, really good material, but people don't read. You know, it's sad. People just don't read anymore, but they, they go on YouTube. So what I'm doing is I'm, I'm producing a bunch of videos where I take my research in the Diderot canon. I put it in there. We go in depth or we do short videos, touch on all different kinds of subjects. I have William Albrecht coming on. And he tells me he's going to start. He actually finished his first Spanish edition that he's going to put up there. So it's going to be in Espanol as well as broken English that I speak. Uh <laughs> So, yeah, check it out, please. Uh, subscribe. It's called the Apocrypha Apocalypse. Just type it in the search engine. And, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it, you know. That's fantastic. And the piles of books you've written, too, they're pretty good. <laughs> oh, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, Gary, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being here on the show. As always, I want to say God bless you. God bless your family, and God bless the fantastic work you're doing for the church. Thank you so much for our conversation tonight. Oh, you're welcome, and God bless you and your ministry as well. Oh, thank you. Take care. friends for listening to another episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Gary Machuda. Hopefully it really caused you to think more deeply about the Bible and how you understand and, and use and regard the Holy Scriptures. I think it was a fantastic episode. I always love talking to Gary so, so much. He's such a fun guy and such a brilliant scholar. I love it. TheCordialCatholic.com is our website for show notes for this show and blog articles I've written recently. CordialCatholic at gmail.com for your feedback. I love hearing from you guys, so please do reach out. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from, and why or why you continue to listen. 
at Cordial Catholic on Twitter, the Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and please do follow or subscribe, rate and review if you can this podcast. Those ratings and reviews are so important to keep this show going and growing. So thank you for those leaving star ratings and, and, and writing reviews as well. Thanks, guys. Patreon.com slash Cordial Catholic to support this show on a monthly basis. There's perks for all different levels of supporters. Even $1 a month gets you access to a behind-the-scenes podcast. And $5 or more a month gets you entered into draws automatically for fantastic books handpicked by me with, with, with featuring guests from this program. It's great. Thank you guys for your support financially for this show. And hey, thank you for listening, guys. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please pray for me. Please know that I am praying for you every single day. We'll talk again next week. And guys, God bless. Thanks so much. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.